Welcome to In Context, coming to you from Vine Sanctuary, an LGBTQ-led farmed animal refuge in Vermont. We bring you conversations with authors and organizers exploring the connections between animal advocacy, race, gender, and social justice to help put today's big questions in context. Welcome to In Context. I'm Patrice Jones, and our guest today is Anita Kreintz from the SAVE movement. Whenever I think about Anita, I think about how it all started with the Toronto Pig Save movement, and that makes me think about the very first pig who lived here at Vine Sanctuary, whose name was Truffles. We weren't set up for pigs here at the sanctuary, um, but we were about to take in a whole bunch of birds from an informal sanctuary that had lost their land. And what we heard was that there was one pig who was living with all these birds, um, and they were thinking of sending her to a pig sanctuary. But we thought, no, she can't be separated from all of her friends. So we figured out a way to bring truffles here. And indeed, she was extremely close to a whole group of guinea fowl, a whole group of hens. And then she made friends with roosters and with cows and with people and was just such an extraordinarily important member of our community for all the times that she was with us. So I'm gonna dedicate this show uh, to her memory. And the other thing that I remember about that is that the people here at Fine Sanctuary really had to exercise a lot of creativity to figure out how to accommodate the pig when we weren't set up for pigs. And, and, and creativity is one of the things that I think about when I think about our guest, Anita Kreintz, who has shown so much creativity in coming up with different ways to respond to the war against animals and particularly the war against pigs. So Anita, thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule to be here with us today. I can't imagine a better interviewer to be with. So it's, it's, a, it's such a privilege to be with you, Patrice. Ah, well, thank you so much. Now for viewers who might not be familiar with you or your organization, uh, maybe before I get to the things that I really want to ask you, let's make sure they know who you are. So as far as I know, it all started with a dog who you adopted and then had to take walks? That's right. I, I mean, I moved into this area where I still live now, where there's a, was a pig, sorry, a pig slaughterhouse. And I was vegan and I was an activist uh, when I moved here in 2006. But I didn't do anything. I just like I saw the chimneys in the uh, in the distance, and when I took the um, uh, streetcar, and I thought, well, somebody should do something about that. And it never occurred to me to even go to the slaughterhouse and look at the pigs. Though my sister, who was a vegan before me, she had gone to that pig slaughterhouse in the '90s, but it never occurred to me, even though I moved in this area. And then I adopted a, a dog, Mr. Bean, four years later. Every morning we would take long walks along Lakeshore. So it's a busy street uh, in downtown Toronto. And we would see the, the transport trucks and the pigs looking out at us. Um, and I couldn't believe it. I, they, they looked scared, sad, terrified. They were beautiful. I, like, I didn't want to pass the buck. Uh, I felt, you know, we had to do something right away. So we started 
we, we started with potlucks and organizing meetings. And uh, in 2010, late 2010, we set up uh, Toronto Pig Save. And Toronto Pig Save involved vigils. Yeah, so uh, for the first six months, we gathered undercover footage. So we went along the railway lines and the windows to the pen area and the slaughter floor uh, were open. So we actually got a lot of footage. And then uh, in June of 2000, June, July, 2011, we started holding three vigils a week. At that time, I went up to a truck and I couldn't believe the, the pig looking out at me uh, was so sweet and pleading for his or her life. And the pig looked like they were in a dungeon. It was like so crammed, dark, dirty. Uh, I, I just, uh, at that moment, I promised the pig a minimum of three vigils a week. And um, in terms of, you know, drawing from other social movements, I, I knew that, um, you know, the, the literature on labor organizing suggested that you have to stage frequent direct actions in order to win campaigns. Uh, and you need to run comprehensive campaigns. Um, so there's a book by Kate Broffenbrenner uh, called Organizing to Win. And I had actually taken her course or workshop at Cornell University um, a few years earlier. And in comprehensive campaigns, the more tactics that you use, the more likely you're to win. So a comprehensive campaign is divided as five tactics or more. So one of the tactics is stage frequent direct actions. Another one is have a representative organizing team. So just, you know, really have a team and uh, that is represents the community and, you know, engage in cultural activism, you know, draw in celebrities, um, you know, some top-down features like that in order to get mass media and uh, do direct action, nonviolent direct action. Yeah. So, so at that point we made a promise to that pig and we kept that promise and that slaughterhouse subsequently closed a few years later in 2014. And then we started doing vigils in Burlington, which is about 40 minutes out of Toronto by train. And, and there came a time, speaking of nonviolent direct action, when, when in response to the profound and visible thirst of a pig, you offered some water to a pig and ended up- Yeah, so again, I want to emphasize that um, our, our movement right from the start emphasized team leadership. So ideas came from different people, in fact, we, we started doing 12 hour vigils at the slaughterhouse so we could see how many trucks came in. So it was roughly 30 trucks carrying 200 pigs, that's 6,000 pigs going to slaughter in downtown Toronto. And we did a 12 hour vigil in the summer and uh, Kimiko, one of our activists came and she goes, the pigs are so thirsty, we should give them water. You know, we didn't at that stage yet. Other people were starting to suggest that. Then there was an activist that went to a cow vigil and brought fruit and started giving it. And so it was organic in terms of how it arose. And then in June of um, 2015, it was a regular vigil. I was on the track island with Nikki, another activist. A mother and her son were on the sidewalk across the street and there was another activist. And we we're just giving water as usual. It was a very hot day in the high 20s degrees Celsius. And uh, the, the trucker, Jeff, jumped out of the cab and said, don't give them water. And then I, I quoted Matthews in the Bible saying, if you're thirsty, give them water. You know, if you're homeless, give them a home. And he said he'd call the police. And I said, call Jesus. And, and, he, and then he tried to, he said he'd slap the, the, the um, water bottle out of my hand. And I said, that's assault. And I couldn't continue to give water. And then he's, he, he then 
unfortunately just drove into the slaughterhouse and those pig, poor pigs went to slaughter. And I didn't hear anything back for another six weeks when a police officer came to my door and said I was charged giving water and I was shocked. And I actually invited the police officer inside my home and showed him the video of that day because we posted that video because it was so outrageous. And uh, and then the, the, there was a pig trial and uh, I had two uh, vegan lawyers who were pro bono. They, they helped turn the tables and put animal agriculture on trial. And it was, it was a really good fight, but we had two objectives. One, compassion is not a crime. And then the second one is pigs are not property. At the end, we won on the first, but not the second, which was the more important objective. But it, we certainly appreciated all the global support and winning on, on, on the idea that, that the golden rule is respected in law as well. First, I should just uh, thank you and all of the activists involved uh, for the fortitude and the emotional fortitude that it takes to engage in such sustained witnessing of suffering as part of a, a strategy, um, but also just in and of itself. That's such a hard thing to do. And you've done it year after year after year. And I know I am for one, profoundly grateful to you for that. You, you decided then to scale up or rather out, I'm not quite sure how to describe how Toronto Pig Save has now become the Save Movement, which is an international network. And the thing that really struck me when we were having a conversation a couple of years ago was you mentioned to me that the organization ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which I was involved in in the 1990s, uh, was in fact one of your models when you decided to go ahead and try to initiate this global movement. So I just would love for you to share uh, your process of, of taking uh, knowledge and tactics from other movements and then applying them to what you were trying to do for animals. Can, can you talk some about that? You know, some of our early inspirations were Tolstoy, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, as you mentioned, ACT UP. Whether we did a good job applying those lessons is another question. Like for years, we're very much focused on a, a single tactic, which is uh, these vigils at slaughterhouses. We tried to develop them into campaigns. We didn't have a lot of capacity to do that. But more recently, in the last couple of years, we now have the capacity to run major campaigns and, and to, you know, in, to include, incorporate a, a number of different tactics. But um, in terms of scaling up, in terms of number of groups, uh, we were very much inspired by Tolstoy's nonviolent anarchism. And by that, he meant political and economic democracy. I think economic democracy is also very important. So in 2015, when the pig trial happened, um, our movement had grown from one group to about 35 groups in five years. And then in the next five years, it grew to about a thousand groups. And the reason it grew so much faster afterwards is we were able to fundraise and organize. And once we had additional resources, our focus was on expanding the movement worldwide. We felt we wanted a globally representative movement. We didn't know if it would work. So we, we weren't exactly sure you know, whether it was possible, but to our surprise, it took off like in Mexico, uh, many groups formed um, groups in Panama, Peru, Colombia, and Argentina took off in a big way, Uruguay. So uh, we were pleasantly surprised that it grew there. We, we, haven't, we did not have success in uh, Russia or some of the, the, the surrounding countries there, although 
um, we had a little bit of success in Czech Republic and Slovak Republic and Poland for a while. Uh, it took off in Europe, uh, North America, um, in India. It took it took a few years, but then it really now it's really taken off there in Australia. There are a number of groups. Our goal from the start was not to just focus on Toronto. And uh, when we got resources, those were distributed globally. So like uh, there there are like fellowships, roughly 150 fellowships. Some of them very small, some of them larger, that allow for some activists to do sort of part time activism. And I think that's helped us grow. So in the, the, the last few years. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but one thing that, that seems to me true um, and which differentiates you from some organizations that function sort of as multinationals where they're, they're, they're centered in the U.S. and then they have international campaigns, but, but, but all the power is still located in the U.S. But it seems to me that your way of organizing the different SAVE chapters is different and that the power isn't concentrated there in Canada with you, but is distributed yeah, I think throughout the, like, the, the chapters Is that are true? Autonomous, fairly autonomous. We just follow a few principles. So we have a code of conduct. Chapters are fairly independent too. And, and, and there's an advantage in that because they can be more creative. So one of our influences in terms of theoretical influences was the work of uh, Marshall Gantz. He used to be the director of operations for the United Farm Workers book. We talked about, you know, why the United Farm Workers were successful, whereas other groups weren't. One of his main conclusions was you need expanding team leadership. So instead of running a hierarchical group, uh, a successful movement is one that has expanding team leadership where you're open to, you have a representative team. And you're also open to outsiders. So like in the case of the United Farm Workers, if somebody from SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came by, they would just have them join the team. And that, that lent itself to creativity, because you mentioned the importance of creativity. Strategic capacity is defined as the ability to devise creative new tactics. And, and uh, the United Farm Workers would have uh, like roving blockades or, you know, to, and they, they would implement uh, interesting strategies like boycotts of liquor stores and wines and grape boycotts. And they would have organizers in grocery stores around the United States in different cities. They were constantly developing creative um, ideas and, and it had to do with their type of decision-making, which was expanding team leadership and a democratic and accountable type of decision-making process. And we've tried to implement that from the start. Right, you know, when Toronto Pig Safe started, it was like using those ideas of representative committees, expanding team leadership, and and making decisions with the, the, this kind of structure. So, so yeah, and just we just applied it globally. That's been really impressive uh, to watch uh, the Save movement grow and to understand. Uh, that it's growing so organically and, and upon such, not just democratic, but anarchistic principles, which I think non-human animals endorse, because I'm pretty sure none of them have come up with armed governments and armies yet. So I have one final question for you, but before I get to that, I know that there's an initiative currently of the SAVE movement called the Plant-Based Treaty, um, and I definitely want to talk more about that in another episode, but can you give us just a little hint of what that is? So the Animal SAVE movement, we know for doing animal vigils outside slaughterhouses, and then a couple of years ago, we opened a climate safe branch and a health safe branch sort of to tackle the multiple reasons for going vegan and, and uh, you know, not, not, not exploiting animals. And, uh, um, and then uh, a year ago, 
experimented with our structure yet again. So we have this very flat structure where half our budget goes to grants, hub grants that's, that fund city powerful campaigns in different cities around the world. And that, that's sort of the nonviolent anarchism with respect to economic democracy. Um, and then, then we added this other layer of structure, which is a, a core team of experts uh, globally representative. And that enabled us to launch campaigns like never before. So that was a very interesting innovation that we, we needed to go to the next level. So last year we launched two big campaigns. One is called Stop Animal Gifting, uh, targeting Oxfam and other charities that gift goats, pigs, chickens, and so forth. And then the, the other campaign we launched is called Plant-Based Treaty. And uh, the aim of the treaty is to create bottom-up pressure on governments to negotiate a global plant-based treaty to be incorporated in the, you know, the Paris Agreement, uh, the, the International Climate Agreement. And another goal is to give tools, resources, actionable items to um, different actors in society to implement plant-based actions now. So you know, if, you look, if you listen to Greta Thunberg, after COP26, she said results were blah, blah, blah. So in other words, at the global level, they weren't, there wasn't, there wasn't important progress given climate emergency. And, and so she said, she and the Guardian concluded that we need to do everything we can here and now, you know, at all levels, you know, whether it's the community level in your home, at school, at work, at the city level, you know, we just have to implement. So, so basically the plant-based treaty has two goals, a global treaty, but also having us do everything we can now. And uh, we copied the fossil fuel treaty, the Fossil Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's a very sophisticated environmental campaign uh, launched by Stand Earth, but then incorporating all the other big environmental groups. They have a lot more resources than we do in the animal rights movement. And so they developed a really good campaign, like a, a website with a campaign hub, and their model is to get a million individuals to endorse, 10,000 groups, uh, 50 cities. So basically we copied all of that and we were able to launch within four months because we had such a good model. And we met with the chair of the fossil fuel treaty, Sapora Berman. Uh, she was one of the heroes in the 90s. Uh, I, she was the blockade leader in Clackwood Sound in the Great Bear Rainforest. And I got arrested under her leadership twice and spent a night in jail for the second one, the Great Bear Rainforest campaign. So I knew her very well from the 90s. And then 20 years later, I contacted her and said, what can we do to put animal agriculture on the international climate agenda? And she said, target governments. Don't only focus on individual diet change, focus on policy change. Governments are very powerful actors. You need to target them. With respect to the plant-based treaty, we're interested in both individual change and system change because there's always this relationship between agents and structure. I mean, the more agents you have doing the right thing, that changes the structure. And if, you know, and, 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 you know once we have majority public opinion and enough protest, we can outlaw, you can have structural changes that influence everyone as well. You could outlaw um, you know, the egregious abuse of animals and uh, you, know, you could ban the consumption of animals. And so if, if people want to learn more about that, they can just go to plantbasedtreaty.org. They can sign it. So we, we were asking, we want a million people to endorse, to sign it. So if you can sign it on the homepage. And I want to salute your creativity and sort of in seeing the carbon treaty and, um, and thinking, oh, we could adapt that and then figuring out how to do that so quickly. I mean, and nobody ever knows how any of these campaigns are going to go and what, what's going to work. 
but like if we all just keep throwing our creativity at it that's at least a chance if i could clone something about you it would be like this this um voracious interest in learning from other movements and thinking strategically creatively adopting what you've learned and then figuring out how to try and put it into practice understanding that this might not be the solution but we just keep trying different things and i love that you just keep trying different things and that every time you try something new it's always something that's rooted in something that you've learned um something that some other activists tried or some thinker said and so you're sort of meshing the things that you learn with your own creativity and you're willing to just nest to just put things into practice i really love that about you what would you say uh because here you are someone who's been involved in uh profound uh direct action for environment direct action for animals who clearly uh, has learned a tremendous amount about social change movements of various eras and, and, and is constantly thinking about how to put those lessons into practice. What would you say, what, what, what's some advice that you would give to a person who maybe like yourself before you started Toronto Pig Save, when you would just see those smokestacks and you would know that it was there and you would think somebody should do something. And then at some point you realized, oh, that somebody is, is me. So what would you give, what advice would you give to a person who's just now suddenly realizing, oh, the somebody who should do something is me? That's such a good question. Um, you know, even when I was arrested in the 93 for Clackwood Sound, it was my sister. I went with my sister to the peace camp and I wasn't going to get arrested. I was, like, oh, I was thinking about it and I asked her and to her, like no big deal at all. Like it's like nothing. And then I remember when I got arrested, I was like shaking like a leaf. And then when I finally got into in the, the detention center, I thought, wow, that wasn't so bad. And I was just thinking like fear is such a barrier. People they, you know, my fear of authority was so huge. And then when I got arrested, I thought, oh, okay, that was okay, you know? And uh, I just think my advice would be to respect, like respect activists, um, because uh, my inclination wasn't to be an activist, my sister was, and uh, I, I just got, I got sort of drawn into it. And um, I just think uh, activism is necessary for all of us. We all need to be activists and just to, just to have respect for them, like, uh, uh, because there's in society, we're taught not to respect, you know, the, the norm is to not respect activists, but we need to change that norm. And it's, it's activism and social movements that lead to, you know, the progressive changes. And right now we're facing an animal and a climate emergency and an existential threat. And we need a whole lot of activism. In fact, if you, you know, that there's that study that's by, by um, Chenoweth, where you know we need 3.5 percent of the population in nonviolent protests. This is real. What she's saying is very real. Historically, a lot of positive changes has happened when 3.5 of the percent of the population is engaged in nonviolent protests. Plus, you need a majority public opinion. If you have those two things, you can get major changes. So that's what we're fighting for. You know, there's so many different tactics that you can do. It's like speak up all the time. You know, never remain silent. You know, if everybody did it, then we would, you know, we would create the world we want. 
And I guess one other thing I would say is just the importance of bearing witness. That's what changed for me to become, to de dedicate my entire life to it, to, to, to animal rights and climate justice. Is like when I saw the pigs firsthand, face to face, it was an abstract. And I, in fact, had prejudices. I sort of thought, oh, all pigs are the same. I had crazy prejudices in my head. Then when I started bearing witness, every pig is an individual, just like you and I. I just can't overemphasize how important it is to bear witness. And I think we all have a duty to not turn away, but come close, as close as you can, and try to help, uh, to paraphrase Leo Tolstoy. Any social movement, whether it's ACT UP or uh, any, any movement, when you're on the street with the people that are suffering, whether it's from AIDS or whatever, whatever the injustice is, there's nothing like that firsthand, um, you know, face-to-face uh, -face interaction and um, nothing motivates you more or makes it more priority in your life than, than to, 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 to observe and experience something firsthand. Wow. So thank you so much, so much for making time to talk to us. This is uh, this is Anita Kreins, who's been with us from the SAVE movement, which you can visit online to learn about their different chapters. And perhaps there's a chapter near you. She mentioned the plant-based treaty, treaty uh, which you can go to plantbasedtreaty.org org to sign and find out about in case you want to do something for that in your local community. This has been in context with Patrice Jones from Vine Sanctuary. You can visit vinesanctuary.org to see show notes and find out about upcoming episodes. I want to thank Anita again for taking the time to talk to us. I want to thank our producer, Sarah Jane Blum. And I want to thank you for all of the things that you have done or will do for animals yesterday, today, or tomorrow. This has been In Context. Thank you.